Welcome to another edition of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I know it sounds kind of strange. Two of them being uploaded in one day because this will be my second one. But uh, when I first started my podcast journey, 50-something episodes ago, and it was under a different name, one of the things I said I would talk about would be Negro League Baseball History. And at this point, time that's exactly what I'm going to talk about baseball way back Buck O'Neill instrumental in some of Cubs top players Ernie Banks Lou Brock being two of them right off the bat the name Buck O'Neill is familiar to anyone who watched Ken Burns baseball documentary O'Neill's voice brought Negro League baseball to life no one was more qualified to be his spokesman, since O'Neill lived at its epicenter as a player and manager with the Kansas City Monarchs. His significance to Chicago baseball should be apparent to any Chicago Cubs fan. As a scout, he was the pipeline through which black talent reached the north side. If it weren't for O'Neill, Cubs fans would never have enjoyed Ernie Banks and Billy Williams. In addition to signing Banks, O'Neill signed another Cubs great, Lee Smith, as well as two players who would find success outside of the organization, Joe Carter and Lou Brock. When I spoke with Billy Williams about O'Neill, he said, he was like a father figure, not only for me, but other black players in the organization. Like another Kansas City Monarch, Jackie Robinson, O'Neill broke the color barrier. In 1962, the Cubs made O'Neill, who had been a scout with the club, with the club since 1956, the first black coach in major leagues. On May 30th, 1962, Cubs GM John Holland told the Chicago Tribune, "Buck will serve as an instructor." The report noted that Holland predicted more than two years before that O'Neill would become the first of his race to serve as a big league coach. O'Neill is credited with taking Banks under his wing when he was a manager with the Monarchs. Then, on August 16, 1953, O'Neill was managing the West team and Banks was playing shortstop for him during the East-West All-Star game at Comiskey Park. In the 5-1 West victory before 10,000 fans, Banks went hitless in four at-bats, but handled seven chances at shortstop flawlessly and made a spectacular throw to first from deep short on a smash by Verdez Drake, robbing him of a hit. The next day, sports writer Wendell Smith drove Banks and O'Neill to Wrigley Field so the Cubs could take a closer look. On September 13, 1953, the Cubs announced that Banks purchased that Banks purchased from the Monarchs would join the team. Also that day, the Cubs announced the call-up of shortstop Gene Baker. Baker and Banks would be the Cubs' first black players. O'Neill played an important role in working with black players in the Cubs system. Even though scouts 
Ivy Griffin, not O'Neill, signed him. If it weren't for O'Neill's intervention in 1959, Billy Williams would never have played in the friendly confines. Williams said that while on a road trip with AA San Antonio, as the bus rolled down the highway, the white individuals would go in and they would get food, and I had to sit on the bus and wait on somebody to bring me food. So I just got fed up with it, and I didn't want it no more. So I took off and went home. I went back to Alabama. Holland called O'Neill and told him to visit Williams and see what was wrong. As Buck tells it in his book, I was right on time. He showed up at Williams' family's home for an apparent social call. The next night after dinner, he convinced Williams to visit a local sandlot ball field where Williams was mobbed by young players who peppered him with questions about Ernie Banks and treated him like a superstar. Williams soon said he was ready to go back, and O'Neill drove him back to San Antonio. When O'Neill first saw Brock as a freshman at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he was a kid with tools and no polish. After his junior year, O'Neill recalled he found out Brock was in Chicago trying out for the White Sox. But although the Sox offered Brock $15,000, Brock had given his word to give the Cubs the last shot. As a result, the Cubs signed him for $30,000. In his book, O'Neill wrote about the Brock for Ernie Broglio deal with the Cardinals. He said, people always ask me if I feel bad about the trade, but I just felt happy for Lou. In giving one of his sons the middle name of O'Neill, he gave me one of my greatest honors. In 2002, however, O'Neill expressed different feelings in an essay he wrote for Baseball as America, a National Geographic Society publication. He said that when he heard the trade was in the works, he advised Holland against it. Holland, he wrote, started pulling out letters and notes from people, season ticket holders asking, what are you trying to make the Chicago Cubs into, the Kansas City Monarchs? The implication being that the Cubs had too many black players. Williams said, if it was done, I didn't know about it. Williams also pointed out that we needed pitching. And Ernie Broglio between 62 and 63. I think he won 30 games, and everybody felt that he could come in and be one of the outstanding pitchers for the Chicago Cubs. Brock wound up in the Hall of Fame, and Broglio's career was soon ended by arm troubles. Williams said, "If that trade happened today, it would have been it wouldn't have been made because you would have trainers, you would have doctors." you would have everybody checking that individual out to make sure that he's sound. Writing about his tenure as Cubs coach, which began during the College of Coaches era, O'Neill said Holland vaguely left open the possibility that he would return, that he would part of the head coach rotation. But he wrote, I soon found out there was no chance of that happening. At the end of his life, O'Neill said he was gratified to see the interest 
in the Negro Leagues. He wrote, it's wonderful that folks are remembering the people who built the bridge across the chasm of prejudice, not just the men who later crossed it. And there you have some Negro League baseball history for today. Stay tuned. I'll be back with some more after this word from my sponsor. So as Major League Baseball celebrates Negro League's 100-year anniversary, a history of trailblazers is not forgotten. When sports fans think of dynasties, most may think of the New England Patriots, the Golden State Warriors, New York Yankees, or the Chicago Bulls. When sports fans think of the all-time great baseball players, most may think of Ken Griffey Jr., Babe Ruth, Nolan Ryan, or even Mike Trout. However, when these debates come up, a very few consider the legendary athletes and teams that are an integral part of baseball history. That being those players and teams that played in Negro League Baseball. The 2020 Major League Baseball MLB season marks the 100-year anniversary of Negro League Baseball. Major League Baseball is honoring the Negro Leagues in various ways such as patches for all players, coaches, and umpires to wear, as well as featuring the commemorative logo on all bases and lineup cards. Before Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier in April 1947, Negro League Baseball was a way for African Americans to get involved and play the sport. African Americans could not compete in MLB at the time due to segregation in America, so various professional Negro Leagues were implemented across the country. From as early as the late 1800s, there were many Negro Leagues in America. The last Negro League the Negro American League ceased operation in 1959. What some do not realize is that one of the greatest Negro Leaguers of all times resided right here in Delaware. William Judy Johnson spent most of his life living in Marshallton, Delaware. His house remains standing to this day and is the National Register of Historic Places. Judy Johnson began taking an interest in baseball at the age of 13, and he continued playing baseball in Wilmington through his high school years. In Wilmington, Johnson attended Howard High School until he dropped out to get a job and help support his family. Later in life, Johnson described his experiences playing baseball in the first state. Baseball was where my first love was my first love. One thing I worked hard to say was playing ball. When I became good size, I joined a Wilmington team called Rosedale. We played on Saturdays against other white and Negro teams from around town. All of us, whites and blacks, played every chance we got at the ballpark at second and Dewpoint. We walked to all the games, Johnson said. Johnson became the first Delawarean inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. 
He was known for his consistent hitting and his efficiency at getting on base, as well as his superb leadership on all the teams he played for. Johnson played on two of the greatest Negro League teams of all time, the Hilldale Daisies in the 1920s and the Pittsburgh Crawfords in the early to mid-1930s. With the Hilldale Club, Johnson contributed to three straight Negro League pennants, including winning the 1925 Negro League World Series with the club. As a player for the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Johnson was a key part to one of the greatest baseball teams of all time. Owner Gus Greenlee constructed a dynasty in the Crawfords, signing many All-Stars to play for his team, including Judy Johnson, Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, and Cool Papa Bell, all of which are Hall of Famers in Cooperstown, New York. Judy Johnson passed away in 1989, but his impact on the game of baseball is still felt to this day as many of the great Negro Leaguers paved the way for people of color to eventually play in the MLB. Johnson not only has a legacy as one of the best players of his time, but also as one of the greatest Delawarean athletes of all time. The Wilmington Blue Rocks, minor league affiliate of the Kansas City Royals, honored the legacy of Judy Johnson by naming their field after him. On August 20th, the Kansas City Royals and St. Louis Cardinals announced that for their September 22nd matchup, both teams will wear throwback uniforms honoring the Kansas City Monarchs and the St. Louis Stars, two teams from the Negro League. These 100 years later, we stand in awe of the Negro League and of the brave examples of people like Rube Foster, J.L. Wilkinson, Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, our own Buck O'Neill, Satchel Paige, and so many others. Their efforts truly transcended the game of baseball, said Kansas City Royal CEO and Chairman John Sherman in a press release. MLB began promoting the Negro League's 100-year anniversary in June with the Hashtag Tip Your Cap 2020 initiative. Various current players and MLB alumni were featured in this video, tipping their cap as a show of respect to the Negro Leagues. Commissioner Rob Manf Manford and MLB have made it a point to heavily recognize and support the Negro Leagues. All game-worn uniforms, bases, and other items commemorating the centennial will be auctioned off with all proceeds going to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. So, let me pose this question. We see what's going on in our society today. A lot of social justice issues going on. Seems like they're taking front and center. And even though sports is supposed to be that getaway, and to a point it is, sports is also, also intertwined in the social and political arenas for one reason or the other. So let me pose this question to give you, my listeners out there, something to think about. Especially since the 
commemorating of the 100 years of the Negro League could in today's time could there be a resurgence of a Negro League baseball league and could it survive when you look at the landscape of sports seems like most of your Negro athletes are playing in two sports, one being basketball, the other being baseball, uh, not baseball, basketball, and the other one being football. Even though Major League Baseball has its few share of black athletes, you still don't see teams just flooded with a lot of black athletes. So, with that being said, could there be a start-up Negro League in today's time? And would it survive or thrive or whatever acronym you want to use for it? Could it survive or thrive in today's time? Because with everything, it has to be financially funded as well too so would the finances be readily available available and could there be I don't know how to, how to say this would there be a conflict of interest if a Negro League was to start now I know you're saying why would you want to start a Negro League just to say that I had the chance to experience it in my lifetime I think it'd be something nice to experience. And yet, it wouldn't take anything away from the Negro League Baseball Museum experience in Kansas City. That's still on my bucket list to go visit that. When I had the chance to, I just totally forgot all about it. I was married at the time, but, you know, be that as it may, my bucket list is to go visit the Negro League, base, Negro League Baseball Museum. But yeah, as you listen to this podcast, think about that. Could the Negro League survive in today's time? And who would be willing to back it up financially? Because there would have to be some financial backing in order for the league to thrive. And could the league also pay its players? And would this be an outlet for players of color to want to explore a Negro League if one existed in today's time? Stay tuned. This train is building up some steam. I'm just getting started. I have some more when I come back. One of the greatest baseball players ever to come out of a historically black college and university would have been from the Jaguars of Southern University, Lou Brock, 1939 to 2020. 
one of the most iconic figures in the history of Southern University athletics and Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Lou Brock passed away in his home. He was 81 years old. Brock, the left fielder for the Jaguars, cemented his place in Jaguar baseball lore when he launched a three-run homer over the outfield wall, sending Southern to an eventual 10-2 win and a claim in the 1959 National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics, aptly known as the NAIA National Championship, the first African-American team to ever earn such a title. Brock played a total of 19 Major League Baseball seasons, including 16 seasons with the Cardinals. During his time in St. Louis, Brock finished in the top 25 of voting for National League MVP for six straight seasons. He started his career at the Chicago Cubs before the club traded him to the Cardinals in the middle of the 1964 season. A two-time World Series champion with St. Louis, Brock hit 300 with five RBIs to help the Cardinals beat the New York Yankees in seven games in, 19, in the 1964 World Series, becoming the first player from a historically black college and university, HBCU, to win a World Series. In an MLB career that spawned from 1961 to 1979, Brock became known as one of baseball's most complete players. A speedster on the base path, Brock retired as the all-time league leader in stolen bases, 938. He surpassed Ty Cobb's stolen base mark of 892 during the 1977 season. From 1964 to 1966 to 1974, Brock led the Negro League in steals every season except for one. His record was standing until 1991 when Ricky Henderson became the new stolen bases, stolen bases all-time leader. Brock retired in 1979 as the single season and all-time leader in stolen bases. Marks since surpassed by, guessed it, Ricky Henderson. The El Dorado, Arkansas native ended his 19-year career with 3,023 hits, 149 homers, 900 RBI, and a .293 batting average. He was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in 1985 in his first year on the ballot, becoming the first player from an HBCU to be enshrined into the Hall of Fame. And he has a long list of statistics, and we're going to try to get through those. Starting with 1964 in 1967, won World Series ring as member of the St. Louis Cardinals. In 1966, led the league with most stolen bases, 74. 1967, led the league with most at-bats, 689. Most runs, 113. And most stolen bases, 52. Selected to the All-Star Game, 1967. 71, 72, 1974, 75, and 79. Led the league with most doubles, 
46, most triples, 14, and most stolen bases, 62. That was 1968. 1969, led the league with most stolen bases with 53. 1971, led the league with most runs, 126, and most stolen bases, 64. 1974, named Sport News Player of the Year. In 1975, earned the Jackie Robinson Award. In 1975, earned the Roberto Clemente Award. In 1977, broke Ty Cobb's record, Ty Cobb's career stolen bases, record of 892. 1979 earned the Hutch Award, which honors former Cincinnati managers, manager Fred Hutchinson. Also in 1979, became the 14th player in baseball history to achieve more than 3,000 hits. In 1979, retired with a career record of 938 stolen bases, a record at the time. 1985, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and in 2002, earned the Horateo Association of Distinguished Rich People's Award. And it did not say Rich People's Award, it just came across a name I could not pronounce, so that was the best way I could do it, okay? But anyway... Been listening to A Train Sports Talk podcast. I thank you for joining in, and I ask that you share this podcast video with anybody that you know that's on Facebook, or if you got Instagram, you can share it to Instagram. It doesn't matter. Just get on and share it, and like it, and like it, and share it, and share it, and like, and like, and like. Once again, this is A Train Sports Talk podcast. This is Anthony Smith. I am signing out. Until next time. Have a wonderfully blessed day on purpose.